You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. For today's episode, we've teamed up with the Canadian Museum of Nature in Ottawa in conjunction with their new exhibit, Brain, The Inside Story, to talk about some exciting new uses for old drugs. You can experience Brain, The Inside Story for yourself by visiting the Canadian Museum of Nature anytime before September 3rd of this year, 2018. Our guests on the podcast today, Dr. Eric Sell and Dr. Pierre Blier, will be giving a talk called Old Drugs, New Uses on July 5th. So if you want to do a deeper dive into the topics we'll be discussing on the show today, we've included information in the show notes and on our website about how you can reserve your free spot to attend that talk. Humans have experimented with psychoactive plants since the dawn of civilization. In fact, marijuana and its potential psychotic properties are recorded in the earliest ever written book of plant pharmacology, the Chinese Pen Ching, written in about 250 BCE. In the late 1800s, a number of legal medicinal compounds contained quantities of morphine, heroin, or cocaine, such as Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup, a drug given to teething babies that contain morphine sulfate. As society and culture evolved and the addictive properties of some drugs became apparent, medical practitioners and scientists moved away from prescribing or even studying the medicinal properties of some of these illicit or controlled substances. However, on the show today, we will interview two physicians who are part of a growing trend of medical practitioners who are using old drugs for new uses. I'm Dr. Pierre Blier, and I'm the director of Mood Disorder Research Unit at the Royal Ottawa Institute of Mental Health Research. So major depressive disorder is a chronic debilitating condition for which there currently exists no cure. The traditional gold standard for pharmacological treatment of depression have been drugs that target uh, the serotonergic or neuroadrenergic systems. So for example, uh, the what are known as the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or the selective neuroadrenergic reuptake inhibitors, the so-called SSRIs, SNRIs. But the issue is these drugs are likely not perfect. So, Dr. Blier, are these drugs effective in all patients? As in the rest of medicine, not all medication work in all patients. So the SSRIs and SNRIs, if they're used as first-line treatment in the first episode of depression, we can expect about half the patient presenting a significant response, but only about a third uh, presenting a remission. So. Uh, it's more the rule than the exception that the response is is partial or not satisfactory. In that case, then practitioners, psychiatrists like yourself, uh, might choose other methods to help treat depression. So recent evidence from your lab and others have suggested that a drug known as ketamine can be effective in some forms of treatment-resistant depression. So first of all, can you explain to our listeners what exactly is ketamine? Well, ketamine is an anesthetic agent that has been in use for over 45 years. 
and it's still commonly in use nowadays. Uh, for example, if you bring your child to uh, to the emergency room with a broken bone, uh, they may use ketamine to uh, reset the bone in place as an anesthetic agent. It is very safe uh, because it does not depress cardiovascular parameters, so blood pressure, for example, heart rate will not change that much, and it will not suppress breathing, so very safe. And it's probably still the most widely used uh, anesthetic agent on the planet because uh, given its safety, you don't need a fancy operating room to put uh, somebody under anesthesia and monitor all vitals. So ketamine has been in wide use. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the public would probably know ketamine as a party drug or drug of abuse, uh, but actually it is a very uh, safe medication to use, especially in the uh, conditions that we use the, uh, this, this agent. Right, so it does depend on the dose in which you, uh, the dose in which that you administer. At certain doses, it's more acts like an anesthetic versus at other dose ranges, it may have other effects, correct? Absolutely. So when ketamine is used as an anesthetic agent, generally it's about two milligrams per kilo of, of body weight. And when we use it in, uh, in our depress depressive patients, we only use 0 0.5 milligram per kilo. So it's a quarter of a dose. And, and actually when you give it as an anesthetic agent, you push it in a few seconds. So it's a bolus. Whereas when we use it in uh, depression, we infuse it uh, over a 40-minute period. So there is a big difference uh, between the two regimens. In uh, anesthesiology, you aim for a blood level of about 2,000 nanogram per milliliter, whereas when you give it for depression, you uh, usually end up with doses that are one-tenth of that, so around 200 nanogram per ml. So that is one of the reasons why it's, it's so safe to use. So tell us a little bit exactly what does um, happen when you give this much lower dose over a longer period of time. What are the effects or the impacts on, the, on individuals with depression? What happens? First of all, when you infuse slowly these uh, small doses of, of ketamine, uh, patients may feel some dissociation. So they may feel a bit disconnected from their, their surroundings. And that is perfectly normal because actually ketamine is a dissociative uh, anesthetic agent. So the first thing that they will feel are some, some side effects of that nature. And when the infusion is terminated, uh, these side effects will disappear in about 15 to 20 minutes at, at the most. So the side effects disappear very rapidly and a few patients can have an immediate response in the sense that their anxiety will go down, their dysphoric mood will go away and uh, sometimes they, and often they will have a marked decrease in suicidal ideation. However, uh, these benefits which occur in about after patients who are uh, very treatment resistant, they may appear 24 hours after or when they wake up the, the next day. So if the drug works, it has a delayed effect onset of action, but which is actually very short compared to the antidepressant medications like the SSRIs 
or SNRIs. Right, so the SSRIs take sometimes up to two weeks to become effective, correct? So when you give the ketamine, what you're saying is that some patients feel the effects immediately and others it can be as long as 24 hours, but that's still much shorter than with the classic antidepressants. Is that right? Absolutely. So the SSRIs, SNRIs, and other antidepressant medications will take up to two weeks to have an onset of action and not the, the maximal effect. Now with ketamine, what our studies have shown here in Ottawa is that about a quarter of the patient will respond to a first dose. However, we can double that, per that percentage of, of response if we give it repeatedly at a rate of uh, two to three per week over a two-week period. Most patients have to have more than one infusion, is that correct? All patients will need more than one infusion. So the duration of a single infusion can last three days like it can last three weeks. It's extremely variable from one patient to the other. And we cannot predict who's going to respond, first of all, and how long they're going to respond for if they have a, a response. So usually, and what we've done in one of our uh, recently completed study, is you give a first infusion and then you wait and see how long it lasts. So if, if it's a good responder and if it lasts two to three weeks, then you may not want to give it repeatedly, immediately from the beginning. But what we've done in our study is that everybody who tolerated at least the first dose went on to that regimen of three a week for, for two weeks. You know, some people respond after one infusion, some don't, some takes it six, six or so infusions of ketamine. Does everybody eventually respond? Are there some people who don't respond at all to ketamine? Absolutely. I think uh, our estimated uh, response rate is about 50 to 60 percent. So it's still only half. Mm -hmm. However, these are patients who have failed numerous treatments before, like the study mm -hmm. we just completed. Uh, these patients on average had failed three medications and three augmentation strategies. So you're talking here about six medication attempts. And even then, in that population, we still get 50 to 60 percent to to respond. And what we know now is that even, for example, if somebody has failed electroconvulsive therapy, they can respond to, to ketamine and vice versa, which is why our trial is going to be uh, very useful to get uh, people well. Then if they do respond, how long do the effects last? Well, what we did in our study is that once we established a response, we uh, spaced the ketamine infusions to one a week for four weeks, and everybody stayed well. And in our next study, what we're going to be doing is going to once every other week for two more months, and then once a month for the last three months of the, of the study. So basically, with ketamine, we are where we were in 1957 when we discovered the first effective medication for depression, imipramine. We knew it worked, but we did not know how long to give it for before we can withdraw the treatment and keep people well. So that's what we'll be determining. However, we already have some hints because there is a, one of the derivatives of ketamine, the S enantiomer of ketamine, that has been tested in the multi-center study uh, global-wide uh, by giving it intranasally. And what they did in that study was to space out the inhalation, just like uh, we're proposing for, for the ketamine. And it seems that in some patients, you can successfully space out these uh, 
these infusion and even after a stabilization what the study has shown so far is that uh, people will may remain well for a long period of time even though the uh, S-ketamine has been uh, withdrawn with of course ongoing oral treatment uh, as usual. So are there any side effects with these medicines outside of the, dis- the immediate dissociative effects which do um, decline after about 20 minutes or so? What we've seen with the ketamine, first of all, is that we'd never give it to somebody who has a history of drug abuse in the past because we wouldn't want to trigger drug abuse because ketamine is abused on the street. Mind you, when ketamine is abused on the street, there's probably some ketamine in what people take, uh, but as well, there may be other products in it. But uh, in our experience, we never had anybody developed a craving for it. And if anything, they don't really like the infusion. And if they come back and they're still well, when we follow them on a regular clinical basis, they would rather abstain from getting an, an additional ketamine infusion if they are still feeling the benefit of the, of the prior one. Now, when it's abused on the street at very high doses, I'm talking here about 15 to 18,000 milligrams of ketamine a week orally, some people have developed uh, urinary obstruction, which needed surgery to be to be corrected. But just to put things in perspective, when we give ketamine intravenously, we give only about 50 milligrams at most intravenously. So, so the doses are, are quite different. And so far, there hasn't been any uh, long-term deleterious effects identified. So riffing off, you know, the fact that ketamine has, you know, does have the abuse potential, uh, particularly at higher doses, have there been any barriers to studying this drug? Not in my unit. And actually, I was the first one to give ketamine intravenously in, in Canada early in treatment, in development, uh, because uh, my brother is, was chief of anesthesiology uh, here at Montfort Hospital. And so I asked him uh, if I was to do ketamine infusion in your hospital without having you or anybody from your department present, what would you tell me to do? So he gave me all the safety recommendations. I ran that through the uh, medical advisory committee at my hospital. And uh, we just went ahead and started using it as a bridge between different strategy or as a rescue strategy in case of severe illness or suicidal ideation. And since 2010, we haven't had any mishaps, any complications. Uh, When sometimes blood pressure goes up or the patient doesn't feel well or a bit too dissociated, uh, we just interrupt the, uh, the infusion and everything is fine. However, my colleagues were not able to use it in, in Canada because they wanted to go through the anesthesiologists. And anesthesiologists in Canada are, are very busy. And they said, no, you can't do this on your own. You're not well trained to do that. And uh, we're not going to do it. But now it's, it's changing. But if you're properly trained... Uh, there's there's basically no danger, and of course, if you monitor all the vitals. But how did you know to even do these studies? Were, had you been reading the literature? Uh, were there other papers, uh, people that were doing this outside of Canada? It started at Yale University, and the first uh, positive report uh, came out in 1999. And, uh, and actually, it started by... Uh, 
people were using ketamine there to mimic some of the symptoms that patients with schizophrenia have, the dissociation. So they were using very low doses, in fact, at 0.5 milligram per kilo. And they got the idea of using it in depression because one of our colleagues uh, in the 90s, in the early 90s, Dr. Phil Skolnick, had seen that in, in animals, if you give the classical medications to treat depression, you actually have a down-regulation, a decrease in the density of these NMDA receptors. So the folks at Yale thought, oh, well, if you decrease the, the receptors and it has anything to do with the antidepressant response, then blocking the receptor with an antagonist like ketamine could do the same thing but much more rapidly so they did the eight patients and they got spectacular results but they wow. thought it's too good to be th true and because ketamine was already in use uh, throughout the globe and some people actually started uh, abusing it it took another five years before anybody replicated the study got the go ahead to replicate and Dr. Zarati at the NIMH did replicate that, that study under control condition and then further verifications were done and uh, I thought in 2010 it was time for me to to go ahead because there was enough evidence that it could produce benefits. So last question, you know, I think that we're obviously in an exciting time in terms of the research with depression and anxiety disorders and finding novel treatments, but we're still, you know, we, we still don't have a cure and we still don't have obviously the, the panacea, uh, which we may never have, but what do you envisage for the future of how we treat depression? Where, where do you think we're gonna be in about 10 years? Well, uh, good news, bad news. When you say that there's no cure for depression, you're perfectly correct. However, the good news is that when somebody has a major depressive episode, 50% of the times, they will never have another one lifetime. Uh, if they have a second episode, then it's a 70% chance of having or miss chance of getting another episode. And if they have three, it's almost certain that they will have more. So there's, there's no cure. There are people who will never have another one again. Uh, I think where we're going with, with this is we know that the NMDA channel is very important. And the NMDA channel, of course, can be modulated by, by ketamine, but there are uh, many subunits in the NMDA channel. For example, there's a coagonist site, glycine site, which has already been targeted uh, with an agent called repastinel, which has already produced a positive result. There's a, a study in the literature. So I think these drugs are going to be uh, continuously uh, refined to diminish side effects and hopefully uh, improve uh, the response rate that we have. But I have no doubt in my mind that we will identify other targets that could lead to a better, better response in getting people uh, well or e and, and faster, I think, is, is where, we're, where we're going. Because even now that we have all these medications to treat depression, we have ketamine, we have still have electroconvulsive therapy, uh, when these don't work, uh, we still dig in our toolbox to use different combinations of agents. And I've had patients fail ECT, fail ketamine, and we were able to get them back on their feet with combinations of medication. So I think it's going to be a constant evolution where we're going to be able to be, treat everybody to remission eventually. I think that's great. And I also think as well we're 
we're in an era where we are slowly destigmatizing around mental illness and individuals are probably more likely to seek help earlier, which probably has benefits um, because then you're, you're, you're accessing care at an earlier stage of your illness. So I think you're right. I agree that, you know, good news, bad news, but we are, I think, in a better place than I see will probably be even better 10 years down the line. So thank you very much, Dr. Blier. Thank you. My name is Eric Sell. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Ottawa in the Faculty of Medicine, and um, I'm a, a staff pediatric neurologist at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario here in Ottawa. So tell us, just for the people who have only a vague idea, what is epilepsy? So epilepsy is a very common uh, medical condition where um, the patient has a pathological tendency for having unprovoked epileptic seizures or epileptic seizures that are provoked by a stimulus that normally should not induce epileptic seizures in, in most humans. A seizure is a sudden change in the behavior which is not the same as uh, convulsion. So um, most uh, people associate a seizure as a synonym of convulsion or a rhythmic activation of muscles, but um, it can be a, any, any kind of um, sudden uh, paroxysmal uh, change in behavior. How do people traditionally treat epilepsy? Traditionally, the first line is a group of medications called appropriately anticonvulsant uh, medications rather than anti-epileptic medications uh, because they are, as far as, as we know, a treatment to raise uh, the bar for epileptic seizures to uh, break through. And when this pharmacological first line fails, there are other lines of treatment, including um, in um, percentage of patients' epilepsy surgery, a device called the vagal nerve stimulator, which is a form of a pacemaker that delivers electrical impulses to the brain. Uh, more recently, there are some devices that have been approved for adults that will have a similar principle, but deliver electrical impulses directly to, to the brain itself, not through a, a nerve. And uh, there are powerful options like a ketogenic diet, which um, has proven to be in, in many cases extremely effective, but um, it has, of course, its side effects and limitations to use. Um, and, and that has been and remains uh, the, the usual treatment. Okay, and you're trying something new, right? You're using cannabis to treat some forms of epilepsy. Uh, do you use it to treat all epilepsy? No. So cannabis is how we refer in general to uh, products that um, are derivatives or, or byproducts of marijuana plant. Uh, we tend to use a very specific molecule um, in or higher concentrations of this molecule, which is the cannabidiol or CBD. This is used for very specific situations where patients have exhausted 
uh, all the options that have been tested uh, in the medical community as being uh, first, second, third lines and are still not um, obtaining uh, a fair seizure control that can provide quality of life. When I say I use it, uh, I don't really prescribe it myself. I follow uh, families and patients who um, have the access that we can facilitate to a cannabis clinic uh, in different parts of the province that has been approved by the Ministry of Health, is run by um, a college uh, associated uh, physicians who may not be neurologists, may not be pediatricians sometimes, but have uh, an expertise in the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics of um, CBD and uh, have therefore the knowledge uh, and know how to prescribe properly uh, these, these comp this uh, oil. It usually comes as, a, as an oil that is delivering in dosing of drops or milliliters. Okay, and you treat children with this sometimes, right? Yes, a very small, a very small and selective number of children. <clears throat> Most of them have a specific diagnosis known as Dravet syndrome or um, severe myoclonic epilepsy of infancy, uh, which is a, a most uh, refractory or difficult to control form of uh, epilepsy in childhood um, associated with significant difficulties with uh, development. And therefore, the, the, the great majority, if not all, of these uh, patients are young children uh, that have failed uh, many options for the treatment of epilepsy. They are not candidates for epilepsy surgery. And, um, and then uh, as a last resort, uh, in, in some of them, cannabis in the form of CBD oil has partially alleviated or helped with the quality of life. Okay, so I, I bet some people are thinking, oh, g giving cannabis to kids, but um, you don't have to get high to get the benefits, right? No, because um, a, one of the principles of uh, this type of treatment uh, and the way that it, it really was first uh, used by um, Charlotte uh, with the, the famous story of Charlotte Webbs is this particular form of, um, of plant and, and further processing that ensures that the ratio of uh, CBD to THC is not less than 20 to 1. Um, Charlotte Webb tends to have more than 30 to 1. There are some trials that right now that are using 50 to 1. So the overall uh, message is that uh, the percentage or the parts of CBD to THC are much, much uh, superior than what you normally would find just by um, consuming a marijuana plant in any way. Uh, and uh, we know 
for, for many decades now that it is a THC, so the tetrahydrocannabidol, that um, has this psycho-effective type of um, side effects, so what would make you feel high or euphoric or hallucinate. So children or patients in general who use uh, CBD uh, don't, don't have that type of uh, side effects. So lots of drugs have side effects. Are there any for CBD? Yes. Uh, so CBD, uh, even in its uh, high concentration form, uh, often is associated with um, transient decrease in stamina. This can later rebound for good, but initially it can have a sedative effect. It can increase the level of anticonvulsants that, that are used in the same person, such as barbiturates or uh, benzodiazepines. And we're just starting to discover that there might be interaction with other drugs as well. Um, it uh, can affect the gastrointestinal system, inducing um, diarrhea or um, a, a, a vomiting, nausea. Now, one of the arguments for the use of cannabinoids is uh, that um, those side effects um, can be in, in, uh, in some way comparable with side effects that can present with any regular anticonvulsant medication. I assume people uh, aren't smoking it because we don't want the THC. So how is CBD administered to patients? Mm -hmm. So for um, the patients that I follow, with very rare exceptions, it's um, given as an oil uh, by mouth, um, usually very small volumes. Uh, we're talking about one, three milliliters, nothing um, much higher, um, and tends to be given once, two times a day. There are different um, forms of increasing uh, the dose of CBD oil to obtain that ideal balance between effect and side effect, and that's where I, I need uh, the assistance of a colleague who is a, a trained and, more importantly, has experience in uh, the use of CBD oil. What are some of the myths of the medical use of marijuana? Are there questions that you get asked all the time when you tell people what you do? The biggest um, myth is that it's a synonym of smoking marijuana or using recreational marijuana. And um, at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, we had a committee working on a statement to make clear the difference in the use of recreational marijuana versus um, medical cannabis. And um, the, I guess the biggest misconception is that um, when we are treating or participating in the treatment of a child with a chronic disabling disease using medical cannabis that it is as if they were smoking recreational marijuana. And that is far from being accurate because as I mentioned earlier, uh, these children are receiving a very, very um, concentrated form of one of the more than 120 something compounds that uh, marijuana plant is known to have. So um, uh, yeah, definitely the, the biggest misconception. Wow, well great, thanks so much for coming and talking with us. Oh, thank you for having me. This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, 
and brought to you by CKCU, the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. Today's episode has also been brought to you by the Canadian Museum of Nature in Ottawa in conjunction with their new exhibit, Brain, the Inside Story, which will be running until September 3rd of this year, 2018. We'd also like to thank our special guests for this episode, Dr. Eric Sell and Dr. Pierre Blier, and remind you that they will be giving a talk at the Canadian Museum of Nature about the topics we've been discussing today, and that's on July 5th. So if you're in the Ottawa area, definitely check that out. Once again, we've included information in the show notes and on our website about how you can reserve your free spot to attend that talk. Theme music for Minding the Brain is plucked by Michael Terry. Additional music for this episode provided by bensound.com. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.